You're listening to Return of the Birds, the serialized audiobook podcast of Wake Robin by John Burroughs. Thank you for choosing to listen to our podcast. We are grateful for your time and attention. If this is the first time you've dropped into our story, you might want to go back and listen to the previous episodes. But you're welcome to stick around. And a new request. Please become part of the growing Return of the Birds flock. Join our mailing list at returnofthebirds.com for exclusive updates and access to our upcoming book projects. I want to give a special thank you to the women and men in the field who have recorded and cataloged the bird calls and songs I licensed and used over the course of this audiobook. You are doing selfless and important work, and it's appreciated. Thank you. In a certain locality in the interior of New York, I know, every season, where I am to find a nest or two of the slate-colored snowbird. It is under the brink of a yellow mossy bank, so near the highway, that it could be reached from a passing vehicle with a whip. Every horse or wagon or foot passenger disturbs the sitting bird. She awaits the near approach of the sound of feet or wheels, and then darts quickly across the road, barely clearing the ground, and disappears amid the bushes on the opposite side. In the trees that line one of the main streets and fashionable drives heading out of Washington City, and less than half a mile from the boundary, I have counted the nests of five different species at one time, and that without very close scrutiny of the foliage, while, in many acres of woodland at half a mile off, I searched in vain for a single nest. Among the five, the nest that interested me the most was that of the blue grosbeak. Here this bird, which according to Audubon's observations in Louisiana, is shy and recluse, affecting remote marshes and the borders of large ponds of stagnant water, had placed its nest above the lowest twig of the lowest branch of a large sycamore, immediately over a great thoroughfare. And so near the ground that a person standing in a cart or sitting on a horse could have reached it with his hand. The nest was composed mainly of fragments of newspaper and stalks of grass, and, though so low, was remarkably well concealed by one of the peculiar clusters of twigs and leaves which characterize this tree. The nest contained young when I discovered it, and, though the parent birds were much annoyed by my loitering about beneath the tree, they paid little attention to the stream of vehicles that was constantly passing. It was a wonder to me when the birds would have built it, for they are much shyer when they're building than at other times. No doubt they worked mostly in the morning, having the early hours all to themselves. Another pair of blue grosbeaks built in a graveyard within the city limits. The nest was placed in a low bush, and the male continued to sing at intervals until the young were ready to fly. 
The song of this bird is a rapid, intricate warble, like that of the indigo bird, though stronger and louder. Indeed, these two birds so much resemble each other in color, form, manner, voice, and general habits that, were it not for the difference in size, the grosbeak being nearly as large again as the indigo bird, it would be a hard matter to tell them apart. The females of both species are clad in the same reddish-brown suits. So are the young the first season. Of course, in the deep, primitive woods also are nests, but how rarely we find them. The simple art of the bird consists in choosing common, neutral-tinted material as moss, dry leaves, twigs, and various odds and ends, and placing the structure on a convenient branch, where it blends in colors with its surroundings. But how consummate is this art, and how skillfully the nest is concealed? We occasionally light upon it, but who, unaided by the movements of the bird, could find it out? During the present season, I went to the woods nearly every day for a fortnight without making any discoveries of this kind, till one day, paying them a farewell visit, I chanced to come upon several nests. A black and white creeping warbler suddenly became much alarmed as I approached a crumbling old stump in a dense part of the forest. He alighted upon it, chirped sharply, ran up and down its sides, and finally left it with much reluctance. The nest, which contained three young birds nearly fledged, was placed upon the ground at the foot of the stump and in such a position that the color of the young harmonized perfectly with the bits of bark, sticks, etc. lying about. My eye rested upon them for the second time before I made them out. They hugged the nest very closely, but as I put my hand down, they all scampered off with loud cries for help, which caused the parent birds to place themselves almost within my reach. The nest was merely a little dry grass arranged in a thick bed of dry leaves. This was amid a thick undergrowth. Moving on into a large passage of large stately hemlocks, with only here and there a small beech or maple rising up into the perennial twilight, I paused to make out a note which was entirely new to me. It is still in my ear. Though unmistakably a bird note, it yet suggested the bleeding of a tiny lambkin. Presently the birds appeared, a pair of the solitary vireo. They came flitting from point to point, alighting only for a moment at a time, the male silent, but the female uttering this strange, tender note. It was a rendering into some new sylvan dialect of the human sentiment of maidenly love. It was really pathetic in its sweetness and childlike confidence and joy. I soon discovered that the pair were building a nest upon a low branch a few yards from me. The male flew cautiously to the spot and adjusted something, and the twain moved on. The female, calling to her mate at intervals, with a cadence and tenderness in the tone that rang in the ear long afterward. The nest was suspended to the fork of a small branch, as is usual with the vireos, plentifully lined with lichen and bound and rebound with masses of coarse spiderwebs. 
There was no attempt at concealment except in the neutral tints, which made it look like a natural growth of the dim gray woods. Continuing my random walk, I next paused in a low part of the woods, where the larger trees began to give place to a thick second growth that covered an old bark peeling. I was standing by a large maple when a small bird darted quickly away from it, as if it might have come out of a hole near its base. As the bird paused a few yards from me and began to chirp uneasily, my curiosity was at once excited. When I saw it was the female morning ground warbler, and remembered that the nest of this bird had not yet been seen by any naturalist, that not even Dr. Brewer had ever seen the eggs, I felt that here was something worth looking for. So I carefully began the search, exploring inch by inch the ground, the base and roots of the tree, and the various shrubby growths about it, till, finding nothing and fearing I might really put my foot in it, I bethought me to withdraw to a distance, and after some delay, return again, and thus forewarned, Note the exact point from which the bird flew. This I did, and, returning, had little difficulty in discovering the nest. It was placed but a few feet from the maple tree, in a bunch of ferns, and about six inches from the ground. It was quite a massive nest, composed entirely of the stalks and leaves of dry grass, with an inner lining of fine, dark brown roots. The eggs, three in number, were of a light flesh color, uniformly speckled with fine brown specks. The cavity of the nest was so deep that the back of the sitting bird sank below the edge. In the top of a tall tree, a short distance farther on, I saw the nest of the red-tailed hawk, a large mass of twigs and dry sticks. The young had flown, but still lingered in the vicinity, and, as I approached, the mother flew about over me, squealing in a very angry, savage manner. Tufts of the hair and other indigestible material of the common meadow mouse lay around on the ground beneath the nest. As I was about leaving the woods, my hat almost brushed the nest of the red-eyed vireo, which hung basket-like on the end of a low, drooping branch of the beach. I should never have seen it, had the bird kept her place. It contained three eggs of the bird's own and one of the cow bunting. The strange egg was only just perceptibly larger than the others, yet three days after, when I looked into the nest again and found all but one egg hatched, the young interloper was at least four times as large as either of the others and with such a superabundance of bowels as to almost smother his bedfellows beneath them. That the intruders should fare the same as the rightful occupants and thrive with them was more than ordinary potluck, but that it alone should thrive, devouring, as it were, all the rest, is one of those freaks of nature in which she would seem to discourage the homely virtues of prudence and honesty. Weeds and parasites have the odds greatly against them, 
yet they wage a very successful war nevertheless. The woods hold not such another gem as the nest of the hummingbird. The finding of one is an event to date from. It is the next best thing to finding an eagle's nest. I have met but with two, both by chance. One was placed on the horizontal branch of a chestnut tree, with a solitary green leaf, forming a complete canopy about an inch and a half above it. The repeated spiteful dartings of the birds passed my ears as I stood under the tree caused me to suspect that I was intruding upon someone's privacy, and following it with my eye, I soon saw the nest, which was in process of construction. Adopting my usual tactics of secreting myself nearby, I had the satisfaction of seeing the tiny artist at work. It was the female, unassisted by her mate. At intervals of two or three minutes, she would appear with a small tuft of some cottony substance in her beak, dart a few times through and around the tree, and alighting quickly in the nest, arrange the material she had brought, using her breast as a model. The other nest I discovered in a dense forest on the side of a mountain. The sitting bird was disturbed as I passed beneath her. The whirring of her wings arrested my attention when, after a short pause, I had the good luck to see, through an opening in the leaves, the bird returned to her nest, which appeared like a mere wart or excrescence on a small branch. The hummingbird, unlike all others, does not alight upon the nest, but flies into it. She enters it as quick as a flash, but as light as any feather. Two eggs are the complement. They are perfectly white, and so frail that only a woman's fingers may touch them. Incubation lasts about ten days. In a week, the young have flown. The only nest like the hummingbird's, and comparable to it in neatness and symmetry, is that of the blue-gray gnatcatcher. This is often saddled upon the limb in the same manner, though it is generally more or less pendant. It is deep and soft, composed mostly of some vegetable down, covered all over with delicate tree lichen, and, except that it is much larger, appears almost identical with the nest of the hummingbird. But the nest of nests, the ideal nest, after we have left the deep woods, is unquestionably that of the Baltimore Oriole. It is the only perfectly pencil nest we have. The nest of the orchard oriole is indeed mainly so, but this bird generally builds lower and shallower, more after the manner of the vireo. The Baltimore Oriole loves to attach its nest to the swaying branches of the tallest elms, making no attempt at concealment, but satisfied if the position be high and the branch pendant. This nest would seem to cost more time and skill than any other bird structure. A peculiar flax-like substance seems to be always sought after and always found. The nest, when completed, assumes the form of a large suspended gourd. The walls are thin but firm and proof against the most driving rain. The mouth is hemmed or overhanged with horsehair, and the sides are usually sewed through and through with the same. Not particular to the matter of secrecy, the bird is not particular as to material, so that it be of the nature of strings or threads. A lady friend once told me that, while working by an open window, one of these birds approached during her momentary absence, and, seizing a skein of some kind of thread or yarn, made off with it to its half-finished nest. But the perverse yarn caught fast in the branches, and in the bird's effort to extricate it, got hopelessly tangled. She tugged away at it all day, 
but was finally obliged to content herself with just a few detached portions. The fluttering strings were an eyesore to her ever after, and passing and repassing, she would give them a spiteful jerk, as much as to say, there is that confounded yarn that gave me so much trouble. From Pennsylvania, Vincent Barnard, to whom I'm indebted for other curious facts, sent me this interesting story of an oriole. He says a friend of his, curious in such things, on observing the bird beginning to build, hung out near the prospective nest skeins of many-colored zephyr yarn, which the eager artist readily appropriated. He managed it so the bird used nearly equal quantities of various high, bright colors. The nest was made unusually deep and capacious, and it may be questioned if such a thing of beauty was ever before woven by the cunning of a bird. Nuttall, by far the most genial of American ornithologists, relates the following, quote, A female, Oriole, which I observed attentively, carried off to her nest a piece of lamp wick ten or twelve feet long. This long string and many other shorter ones were left hanging out for about a week before both the ends were wadded into the sides of the nest. Some other little birds, making use of some similar materials, at times twitched these flowing ends and generally brought out the busy Baltimore from her occupation in great anger. I may perhaps claim indulgence for adding a little more of the biography of this particular bird, as a representative also of the instincts of her race. She completed the nest in about a week's time without any aid from her mate, who indeed appeared but seldom in her company, and was now become nearly silent. For fibrous materials she broke, hackled, and gathered the flax of the hibiscus stalks, tearing off long strings and flying with them to the scene of her labors. She appeared very eager and hasty in her pursuits and collected her materials without fear or restraint while three men were working in the neighboring walks and many persons visiting the garden. Her courage and perseverance were indeed truly admirable. If watched too narrowly, she saluted with her usual scolding, seeing no reason, probably, why she should be interrupted in her indispensable occupation. Though the males were now comparatively silent on their arrival of their busy mates, I could not help observing this female and a second continually vociferating, apparently in strife. At last, she was observed to attack this second female very fiercely, who slyly intruded herself at times into the same tree where she was building. These contests were angry and often repeated. To account for this animosity, I now recollected that two fine males had been killed in our vicinity, and I therefore concluded the intruder to be left without a mate, yet she had gained the affections of the consort of the busy female, and thus the cause of their jealous quarrel became apparent. Having obtained the confidence of her faithless paramour, the second female began preparing to weave a nest in an adjoining elm by tying together certain pendant twigs as a foundation. The male now associated chiefly with the intruder, whom he even assisted in her labor, yet did not wholly forget his first partner, who called on him one evening in a low, affectionate tone, which was answered in the same strain. While they were thus engaged in friendly whispers, suddenly appeared the rival, and a violent rencontre ensued so that one of the females appeared to be greatly agitated and fluttered with spreading wings as if considerably hurt. The male, though prudently neutral in the contest, showed his culpable partiality by flying off with his paramour, and for the rest of the evening left the tree to his pugnacious consort. 
cares of another kind, more imperious and tender, at length reconciled, or at least terminated, these disputes with the jealous females. And by the aid of the neighboring bachelors, who are never wanting among these and other birds, peace was at length completely restored by the restitution of the quiet and happy condition of monogamy. End quote. Let me not forget to mention the nest under the mountain ledge, the nest of the common peewee. A modest mossy structure with four pearl-white eggs looking out upon some wild scene and overhung by beetling crags. After all that has been said about elaborate high-hung structures, few nests perhaps awaken more pleasant emotions in the mind of the beholder than this of the peewee, the gray silent rocks with caverns and dens where the fox and the wolf lurk, and just out of their reach, in a little niche, as if it grew there, the mossy tenement. Nearly every high projecting rock in my range has one of these nests. Following a trout stream up a wild mountain gorge, not long since, I counted five in the distance of a mile, all within easy reach, but safe from the minks and the skunks, and well housed from the storms. In my native town, I know a pine and oak clad hill, round-topped, with a bold, precipitous front extending halfway around it. Near the top, and along this front or side, there crops out a ledge of rocks unusually high and cavernous. One immense layer projects many feet, allowing a person, or many persons, standing upright to move freely beneath it. There is a delicious spring of water there, and plenty of wild, cool air. The floor is of loose stone, now trod by sheep and foxes, once by the Indian and the wolf. How I have delighted from boyhood to spend a summer day in this retreat, or take refuge here from a sudden shower. Always the freshness and coolness, and always the delicate mossy nests of the Phoebe bird. The bird keeps her place till you're within a few feet of her, then she flits to a near branch, and, with many oscillations of her tail, observes you anxiously. Since the country has become settled, this peewee has fallen into the strange practice of occasionally placing its nest under a bridge, hay shed, or other artificial structure, where it is subject to all kinds of interruptions and annoyances. When placed thus, the nest is larger and coarser. I know a hayloft beneath which a pair has regularly placed its nest for several successive seasons. Arranged along a single pole which sags down a few inches from the flooring it was intended to help support are three of these structures, marking the number of years the birds have nested there. The foundation is of mud with a superstructure of moss, elaborately lined with hair and feathers. Nothing can be more perfect and exquisite than the interior of one of these nests. Yet a new one is built every season. Three broods, however, are frequently reared in it. The peewees, as a class, are the best architects we have. The kingbird builds a nest altogether admirable, using various soft cotton and woolen substances, and sparing neither time nor material to make it substantial and warm. The green-crested peewee builds its nest in many instances wholly of the blossoms of the white oak. The wood peewee builds a neat, compact, socket-shaped nest of moss and lichens on a horizontal branch. There is never a loose end or a shred about it. The sitting bird is largely visible above the rim. She moves her head freely about, and seems entirely at her ease, a circumstance which I have never observed in any other species. The nest of the great crested flycatcher is seldom free from snakeskins, 
three or four being sometimes woven into it. About the thinnest, shallowest nest for its situation that can be found is that of the turtle dove. A few sticks and straws are carelessly thrown together, hardly sufficient to prevent the eggs from falling through or rolling off. The nest of the passenger pigeon is equally hastily and insufficient, and the squabs often fall to the ground and perish. The other extreme among our common birds is furnished by the pharyngitis thrush, which collects together a mass of material that would fill a half-bushel measure, or by the fishhawk, which adds to and repairs its nest year after year till the whole would make a cartload. One of the rarest of nests is that of the eagle, because the eagle is one of the rarest birds. Indeed, so seldom is the eagle seen that its presence always seems accidental. It appears as if merely pausing on the way while bound for some distant, unknown region. One September, while a youth, I saw the ring-tailed eagle, the young of the golden eagle, an immense, dusky bird, the sight of which filled me with awe. It lingered about the hills for two days. Some young cattle, a two-year-old colt, and a half-dozen sheep were at pasture on a high ridge that led up to the mountain and in plain view of the house. On the second day, this dusky monarch was seen flying about above them. Presently, he began to hover over them, after the manner of a hawk watching for mice. He then, with extended legs, let himself slowly down upon them, actually grappling the backs of the young cattle, and frightening the creatures so that they rushed about the field in great consternation. And finally, as he grew bolder and more frequent in his descents, the whole herd broke over the fence and came tearing down to the house like mad. It did not seem to be an assault with an intent to kill, but was perhaps a stratagem resorted to in order to separate the herd and expose the lambs which hugged the cattle very closely. When he occasionally alighted upon the oaks that stood near, the branch could be seen to sway and bend beneath him. Finally, as a rifleman started out in pursuit of him, he launched into the air, set his wings, and sailed away southward. A few years afterward, in January, another eagle passed through the same locality, alighting in a field near some dead animal, but tarried briefly. So much by way of identification, the golden eagle is common to the northern parts of both hemispheres and places its eyrie on high precipitous rocks. A pair built on an inaccessible shelf of rock along the Hudson for eight successive years. A squad of revolutionary soldiers also, as related by Audubon, found a nest along this river and had an adventure with the bird that came near costing one of their number his life. His comrades led him down by a rope to secure the eggs or young when he was attacked by the female eagle with such fury that he was obligated to defend himself with his knife. In doing so, by a misstroke, he nearly severed the rope that held him and was drawn up by a single strand from his perilous position. The bald eagle also builds on high rocks, according to Audubon, though Wilson describes the nest of one which he saw near Great Egg Harbor in the top of a large yellow pine. It was a vast pile of sticks, sod, sedge, grass, reeds, etc., five or six feet high by four broad, and with little or no concavity. It had been used for many years, and he was told that the eagles made it a sort of home or lodging place in all seasons. The eagle in all cases uses one nest, with more or less repair, for several years. Many of our common birds do the same. 
the birds may be divided with respect to this and kindred points into five general classes. First, those that repair or appropriate the last year's nest, as the wren, swallow, bluebird, great crested flycatcher, owls, eagles, fishhawk, and a few others. Secondly, those birds that build anew each season, though frequently rearing more than one brood in the same nest. Of these, the Phoebe bird is a well-known example. Thirdly, those that build a new nest for each brood, which includes by far the greatest number of species. Fourthly, a limited number that make no nest of their own, but appropriate the abandoned nests of other birds. Finally, those who use no nest at all, but deposit their eggs in the sand, which is the case with a large number of aquatic fowls. 1866 You listen to Return of the Birds, a serialized audiobook podcast of Wake Robin, written by John Burroughs and read by Peter Medic, with bird vocalizations courtesy of the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. 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 Recording, editing, and post-production by 44 from 26 in Bellingham, Washington. Post-production and mastering by Counterweight Creative. Recorded at One Fine Studio in Bellingham, Washington. Engineered, produced, and directed by Peter Medic. This has been a presentation of 44 from 26, a family-owned and operated media experiment. For more updates, we invite you to join the growing 44 from 26 community at 44from26.com or visit returnofthebirds.com. Wake Robin is available for digital download in e-reader format at archive.org. This is 44 from 26. Thank you for listening to this episode of Return of the Birds. Please visit returnofthebirds.com to find show notes for each episode. The show notes include links back to the Macaulay Library bird vocalizations we used in this episode images of the birds mentioned in the episode, and more. Finally, any flubs, goofs, and mispronunciations or errors are mine. If you want to tell me about them, stop by 44from26.com forward slash contact and click the button to leave a voicemail or send an email. Till next time, chirp away.